Yeah, let's do it. Alright. <clears throat> Welcome everybody to the first episode of the Movie Dojo podcast. This is Andrew, as always, and I will be interview- interviewing Justin Raleigh today. He, along with the team of Fractured Effects, worked on Aquaman, as well as the second season of Westworld, The Conjuring 1 and 2, the second 300 movie, The Nick, Logan Lucky, Supergirl, True Blood, Jarhead Watchman, Teenage Caveman, <laughs> Stranger Things, just to, name a th- just to name a few, welcome to the dojo, Justin. Thanks, man. You had to <laughs> throw in Teenage Caveman, huh? Yeah. Uh, I saw that on your IMDb, but what exactly was that? It's an abomination. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I was working for Stan Winston at the time, and okay. Stan was a producer on all these creature feature projects. And um, it was kind of, there's, a, there's an old 50s. Uh, Teenage Caveman and okay. Day of the Earth Stood Still and they were recreations of that for I think they were supposed to be theatrical but they ended up only going to like Showtime or something okay. like that and that one is almost unwatchable okay so. <laughs> the name caught my eyes and yeah. I wanted to add a wild card in the introduction oh yeah it's so. a wild card for sure so <laughs> okay well thanks for being our first guest this yeah, is awesome no we have kind of restructured Superhouse podcast this is part of the Superhouse podcast network and movie dojo is one of the first things that we're doing under that and this is an interview only podcast along with our youtube outlet as you can see here so all right so let's get started off immediately with uh, aquaman stuff that's making all kinds of news lately and things like yeah, that crazy news yeah it's kind of unbelievable honestly aquaman of all of all heroes um so as again part of the introduction what parts of the movie did you do so we did a huge amount of specialty costume work um, and uh, creature makeup effects work. I think in total we built over 65 suits and prosthetic elements for the show. Like in particular, like uh, the, the soldiers in the Fish Kingdom, right? Yeah, so we did uh, all the soldiers, uh, Fish Kingdom. So we did uh, Dolph's uh, helmet and a lot of his armor, the Zebelian soldiers. We also did uh, the Red Commandos, White Soldiers, uh, some of uh, Atlanta's elements, uh, all the Fish Kingdom. We did the Gold Suit. I know I'm missing other stuff. Uh, Orm's Royal Guards. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, quite a few characters. It's a huge show. The Royal Guards got probably the least amount of play. They had that just that one scene where they're holding the holding them back in that thing. Yeah. So that build was really just for that one scene. Okay. And like. Uh, the costume that we did for Dolph, that was for one scene. I mean, okay. his helmet is in every sequence that he's in, but okay. that one specific outfit. Like, if you look at Orm, um, right. you know, costume department built five or six different looks or more for him. So, okay. it's, a, it's a ton of work um, just to build a, a little blip on screen. Right, so. right. So. That's cool. Yeah. Um, was there one makeup out of this, the stuff for Aquaman that was, that was your favorite? Can you even play favorites, or is it too soon? Um, yeah, I don't, you know, honestly, I'm not even really a makeup. I'm impressed with the Red Commandos. Okay. Like just just uh, the design evolved and became this incredibly complex design, and we had like six weeks to build all those suits, which is insane. Mm-hmm. And just how it turned out and what they were able to do with it on camera was impressive. So I think with that, I mean, it's a techno- technological feat, um, and I'm just happy with the final result. I mean, some of those fight sequences with those suits are incredible. Yeah. You know? We were like, 
like I didn't know much and like we were like several weeks in and I didn't and then somebody said oh it's a reverse wetsuit or whatever yeah, reverse, reverse scuba suit it's a di- yeah reverse dive bell suit so, yeah so instead of being filled with air it's filled with water yeah, yeah. I, that was I thought that was really cool which the visual effects that they added to it looked really mm-hmm. cool you know yeah you know they amped up our glow and kind of filled in some of the water elements and bubbles and you know little sea creatures no the legs always reminded me of Mega Man, the video game character. It had those kind of like... It kind of has that style. Yeah. You know? It's got a bit of that sort of, yeah, Japanese anime sort of style A little bit. To yeah, a yeah. little bit. A little so. bit. Yeah, I think so. Um, when you have meetings on uh, for, for these kind of characters when you're first brought on... Uh, how much are you told about them? Like, are you are you given like a full character profile for the trench, the Red Commando? Do you have a meeting with Jeff Johns at DC? Like, how does this go? Uh, it depends. I mean, usually initial meetings are conversations with the director and producer. If there's a script at that time, we'll get the script. Um, if art department has been developing the look for anything, we'll get those elements. But usually, the first meeting is always just producer director. And if there's a script, we go through that and we start our own break ra- breakdown um, that we provide to them. Uh, and then from there, sometimes there are meetings where we have DC in the room uh, and we all sit down and talk about how do we get the essence of the character um, while still getting what the director's vision is. So. And they, they do tell you kind of like motivation, where this character's from, like how, oh, yeah. much, how much background yeah. you get. Yeah, we always okay. get all of that. Okay. So usually, like, for example, James would go through and say, I really want this kingdom to look like this. I want them to have these elements. Their actions should be like this. They're moving in this way, et cetera, et cetera. He'll, he'll kind of line out the whole visual process uh, of what he wants them to do and, and what they should look like in their environment. Okay. Yeah. And from that initial stage up until the very end, was it pretty much how you were envisioning it or was it a little bit different? Um, no, I mean, I think it, it, it always kind of changes and, and augments throughout the design process. But I think in the end, that's what we plan to build. You know, at the beginning, this was the, the concept just from uh, verbal conversations to art to final design. I think it stayed relatively consistent with okay. minor, minor changes throughout the process. Okay. And uh, so when you read that first script for the first time, I mean, it was pretty much what you saw on the screen and the theater was pretty much that with some minor changes? I think, uh, no, I think it, it definitely changed quite a bit through the whole process. Okay. You know, I think changes with just what DC and Warner Brothers wanted to do with the story and with the franchise and with the DC universe developed through the whole process. Right. So that changed the script through the process. Okay. I don't think what you see in the end is um, affected by that process. I think James's vision and um, his goal within the script was unwavered by any of that. But um, I know from the beginning to the end, there were some changes that developed okay. through that process. We don't have to go through all that stuff. Yeah. Appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you've been, you worked with James Wan for a while. You're on Conjuring 1 and 2 and things like that. And, uh, Did the Insidious franchise Insidious with as well. Yeah. And, and all that. And I was wondering, um, when you first got the call, hey, you're doing Aquaman. Like, how, was that pretty, that was pretty exciting? Yeah, it was. Because honestly, I mean, James has been very loyal to, to me and to the Fractured team. But um, it's such a big monster of a show. You never know what the studio is going to think. 
And, um, you know, they see a history of doing fairly large budget shows, but not giant $200 million projects with right. James. So sometimes they don't correlate that my history has tons of those projects in it. So I think once they kind of looked at what was on paper on my resume, you know, shows like Tron and Watchmen and, and other huge mega projects like that, they it was kind of a no-brainer. They were like, okay, well, this is James's guy. Uh, James wants to work with him. He has the experience and his team has the experience. So yeah, sure, let's and let's make it work. Doing Watchmen, obviously, that's a big superhero show. Yeah. And that must have helped as well. Yeah, and it's another Warner Brothers property too. Right. So Warner right. Brothers has a, a history there. You know, we did Sucker Punch with them, which is another specialty costume makeup show. So, and that was you know 100 million or something as well. So they 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 look at the history. There was success in the history, so I don't think it was a red flag for them to come to us. Right. So. James Wan does seem. Uh, I've never met him, but it seems like he's pretty loyal to his crew. I mean, you see him bring yeah. along Patrick Wilson with almost everything that he does. That's true. I mean, you James know. James is he's very loyal, which is uh, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, you know, he's found a team that he likes and wants to work with that team, and continues to try and find ways to get everyone involved in the process. You know, and, and that's not like many other directors that are out there. Right. You, know, you find a team that you jive with, and you can work well with, and and you have kind of a you know, uh, a language with each other. It simplifies the whole process. So it makes his job much easier. So. On set, how is it different working with, with James Wan as opposed to other directors? I mean, every director is, is different. James is very hands-on with everything, you know, with a uh, camera, with lenses, uh, with, you know, the way things, you know, if he wanted to blood dress something on set, he'll step in and do that type of stuff. So okay. he's very hands-on. Um, and but he and he also knows what he wants. I mean, he just he thinks like an editor in a lot of ways, and also because he's involved as a writer, um, he just has a big world global view of what the process should be and what he wants to get. Right. So he's able to to inform his crew, I think, very well. Um, you know, and step back and kind of look at it and say, you know, here's the big picture. You guys are seeing this little tiny thing. This is really what I'm trying to create. This is why I want it this way. And he can explain that to you. And you go, okay, that makes sense. You know, where a lot of directors can't really do that. Okay. They're not really editors. Mm-hmm. Um, they have great vision. They're, they're talented directors, but sometimes they don't have that, the kind of global scope that some, some directors have. He sort of has an end product in his head pretty yeah. well. Yeah, very much. Okay. You know, or at least a good sense of what he's trying to achieve, for mm-hmm. sure. You know, and, and, and that may evolve through the process of, of filming. Like, you know, in Conjuring 2, we kind of started down one path. Um, and that halfway through, at least for us, changed. He decided that he wanted to ground things and, and change his aesthetic quite a bit because uh, it made more sense based on what he was filming and the tone that the actors were giving him. And he really looks at it as a storyteller. You know, what is best for the story, right. which is, as a director, that's what you're supposed to do. Right. Yeah. And your, your first experience with him was Conjuring 1? Uh, Insidious. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, okay. I met with him in, two, what was that, 2010 for Insidious, uh, and that was our first project. Okay. And from Insidious, we kind of uh, rolled into The Conjuring, went back to Insidious 2, Okay. and then uh, did... Uh, and I think he went off and became, you know, mega director when he started doing Fast and the Furious, yeah. which I didn't do anything on that. 
but then we came back and uh, you know I've continued to do Insidious films with them, right. and did Conjuring Two, and then now Aquaman. So at that time, it was kind of like you know horror director James Wan is doing an action film. Yeah, and now it's like okay, this guy can do action and horror, you know, and and fantasy. I mean, yes. Aquaman is yeah a fantasy. It's an action film, but it's also a fantasy. It's a lot of King Arthur in there, you know, Arthurian legends, things like Very that. Very much so. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think he did. I think he did a great job of creating a new world, mm-hmm. and not not even just one world; it's multiple worlds. I mean, we mm-hmm. kept talking about that during the build. You know, right. like um, Ken Barrett, the costume designer, and I kept talking about going like, "This is massive." People that yeah. don't realize how how much is in this story, right? Are kind of missing the point because you know we get into budgetary conversations, and the studios looking at going like well, why does it cost this much? And it's like, well, this is not something that you can go and just buy all of your costumes and, you know, <laughs> yeah. walk into the street and shoot your film. It's right. like every single aspect of that movie had to be built. Right. Everything, you know. Right. So it's it's a massive undertaking for James and for the entire crew. Yeah. yeah. It kind of felt like, you know, obviously this is going to continue like they with all the kingdoms they introduced they could be like game of thrones under the sea yeah there's so much yeah. they could do yeah with these kingdoms fighting each other and like especially when the brine and those guys were talking it kind of reminded me of like uh of of like it's a trap like it reminded me of star wars in a sense oh i got you yeah, you know yeah. admiral akbar well it kind of i mean it kind of is. Uh, it's sort of Star Wars underwater in a way. I mean, you could make right. that. You could make that analogy. I mean, but it, yeah. it is. It's giant battles underwater with, you know, ships and and all kinds of critters everywhere. Right. So in a way, you could make that. I could see how you could make that comparison pretty easily. Right. So. At the time of this recording, the news has just re- uh, been released. I think today that it it just surpassed the Christopher Nolan Batman films. And which is nuts. Yeah. Why do you think? <clears throat> how did Aquaman get here? Like, why? It's it's kind of nuts because this is the the most made fun of character. It is, but the, I think that's also part of its charm. And then you put someone like Jason Momoa in there, who's very charismatic, and you know he's basically a sex symbol. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's just a, a lot of women like yeah. this movie. <laughs> it uh, seems like uh, he's you know he's a good looking dude he's giant and he's mm-hmm. just really charismatic and he looks powerful i mean right i i think anyone would be stupid to mess with that guy he's gigantic <laughs> yeah but you kind of you take that and i think they've given the dc universe uh, a little bit of lightheartedness where the biggest complaint with the dc world was that that it was too serious the christopher, right. christopher nolan tone was very real very dark you know, and and that, I think that's very fitting for Batman and an origin of yeah. Batman. Batman's yeah. comics are incredibly dark. Right. Um, you know, his whole family's murdered, and you know the backstory is not happy. Right. So you use some of that, which I think James did. He has a dark side to it, but then he brought in some of the light and some of the fantasy and some of this big, gigantic world, which we haven't really seen. You know, right. Even um, Zach's stuff, which I think Zach did a good job with what he was trying to create. Again, it's a dark world, and it doesn't have that big, bright fantasy element, which right. is missing. Um, Wonder Woman kind of had some of those elements when you kind of go to the, the Amazon world. Right. And I think that was a good selling point because it takes people out of out of this kind of world, this tone that we sort of live in, which right, right now is not great for you know there's oh, yeah. a lot of yeah. there's a lot of dark things in the world right and adding that kind of fantasy element i think was a big selling point for this right because it really did become 
I don't want to say a popcorn movie, that's the wrong term, but it's it's a joyful experience right. opposed to kind of reminding you of dark-seated undertones that surround us all the time. Right. I mean, yeah, there was... We don't have to get too much into it, but yeah, there was kind of some negative backlash to Batman versus Superman and definitely Suicide Squad and things like that. And people were saying they were... It was a little bit too dark and, you know, how dark should Aquaman be and things like that. Right. So it's, it's probably a good choice that they went a little bit lighter and Shazam is going to be the lightest thing they've ever done. So yeah. that'll be interesting. And, and to me, it kind of felt like it's, like... it's like they let James Wan do whatever he wanted. It's like you want... You want armored sharks. You want a kraken. Here, go, go, go. It's like there was very little studio interference. It's yeah. what it felt like to me. I mean, the studio, of course, always has, you know, an opinion. They're always going to have their stamp on things. But um, James is—he's a good director. He has a great history. He has a lot of success in his background, especially with Warner Brothers. So I think they gave him what he needed. They gave him the the room to be creative and right. to try and rebuild this universe you know they they had i'm sure they had some type of um you know checklist of what they wanted to try and achieve and as long as he could fit within that um they would allow the and it fit the budget i think they right. allowed it to happen um and with something like that i mean you are you're building like i said a world so each world really has to have thought and i think to create that fantasy you really have to kind of push it Mm-hmm. You know, which he did. I mean, right. I think in every aspect he pushed it. Yeah, um, it's visually, it's beautiful. It's it's got some really stunning stuff in it. And the going back to the to the orange and green suit too. It was. Yeah. I th- I always I think that's a big thing in the comic book community. It's 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 where you, it's good to change it up a little bit. But you know, if something's been working for years and years and years on the page in these comics, and it's also just that's what comic fans are used to, and it right. seems like it. It spreads out from that niche comic book audience, especially when you make a movie. That desire to see what's on the page isn't just the comic book fans, but it's also, I don't know, it seems to just work. Just kind of more or less stick to that original source material, you know? I think that's the trick with any comic book movie is how do you take what's in the graphic novel or on the page of the comic and bring it to life, make it new, make it its own. Um, and have your own spin and artistic right. license of it, but still carry the essence of what was in the comic. You know, I think right. the gold suit is a really good example of that. I think with Watchmen, that was a huge undertaking uh, with, you know, us and, and costume designer Michael Wilkinson. I know with um, even on Justice League, I know they considered um, who Michael Wilkinson also designed that. I know they considered doing a gold suit oh, yeah. for that. Okay. And uh, recently I saw concept artist Constantine uh, Securis post some images on Facebook. And it's a gold suit. I mean, it's Zach's kind of spin on it mm-hmm. and Michael Wilkinson's spin on it. Mm-hmm. But it has the same overall vibe of what you expect of that gold and green right kind of costume um you know with kim barrett and james um coming into this james really wanted that classic look Uh how do we make that classic look look cool powerful Uh you know it's got to look completely badass on someone like jason momoa (laughs) i mean almost anything would yeah i mean luckily he's got the physique there's yeah you don't have to do much to make him look big and and muscular Yeah. yeah but um it could have went really campy or really bad very quickly. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and, and I know there was some early tests that weren't completely successful. Mm-hmm. And the ultimate, you know, the end goal was like, how do we go back to that kind of classic? We want that rubber suit sort of vibe. Right. 
um, where it's, you know, the Batman suit, where it's skin tight and right. it just looks like cool armor mm-hmm. over someone's body. So that's why we ended up doing this big rubber suit build on him. Although, you know, certain sequences we had to kind of remove elements of the armor mm-hmm. for stunts and, and other right. crazy action. But just that pristine, precision look, that's really the only way to create it and make it look the way it does. Cool. Yeah. Do they tell you to prepare anything as far as like as what to read other than the script? Was there any like, hey, here's a Jeff John's New 52 run or anything like that? No, not really. I mean, um, we all bought that kind of stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, as we were doing research on the character. But um, no, I mean, really, it was more just visual. Okay, like, yeah. You know, go to the aquarium or, you know, buy a bunch of... <laughs> Did they say go to the aquarium? No, no I'm joking. <laughs> okay. but, but, I mean, that's that's kind of the idea is just you want to get as many aquatic books as possible right. and try and find new weird sea life and, you know, just obscure visual references and and start creating a visual language. Mm-hmm. That's that's usually the most important thing on a project like that. Of course, you have to, you have to understand the source material, but mm-hmm. when you're creating a world like that, you have to you have to kind of expand your visual vocabulary right know, and have something that is you know that's why references are so important is you know when you sit in a meeting i could explain it a million different ways but right. you know one image of something or a couple images cobbled together conveys it much better than what you can do verbally right yeah going around the shop at that time everybody had you know uh picture of this kind of fish or that kind of fish yeah you know it wasn't just comic book references right it was <clears throat> Right. Actual fish, actual aquatic life. That kind of, I, I, now that I've been, you know, here for two years now, it's like, yeah, that's. That has it been two, two years? Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. It's been, <laughs> that's been usually the case. There's usually some sort of real life reference there, which I thought was really cool. I just remember the, the sculptors were like, <laughs> the sculptors were like, man, I love my job with these scales. Oh, just, yeah. just sculpting scales was, you know, well, that was a lot. It's part of the reason why we ended up 3D printing you know jason's gold suit mm-hmm. this is that precision i mean with the time that we had it yeah. just would have it's just not possible it's not possible in that time frame in the time frame to get yeah. it that precise right you know, that's mathematically precise and to do right. something like that in clay it is possible it just it's very time consuming yeah, yeah. the process would take so much longer so. right um but your point about usually using um visual aids i mean everything that we build in this industry it has to start from something in nature, you mm-hmm. know, even if it's a comic book, you know, right. we'll look at that as kind of the source and get an idea for it. But then we try and find as many possible references down to, I don't know, I like this rhino texture, right. you know, to add to something. You know, and you'll see all the sculptors or any of the painters kind of set up their, their lookbook, if you will, right. of all their different items. And the human mind and eye, if you kind of just create something out of your head, um, it's going to look foreign. It's going to look mm-hmm. weird. And sometimes there's a place for that. But right. Most of the time you want to try and incorporate something that's real, something that's tangible, right. something that you've already seen or someone has already seen. Because then when they look at it in their brain, they recognize that as something that they've seen before. Right. Opposed to something totally foreign. Right. Which usually when it's totally foreign, it, it doesn't look as good. It started, I, it can look good, but right. most of the time, if you have some reference for someone's brain to key into, it'll look more organic and more real. Right. Like a, like a, a dragon is based on a lizard. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You yeah. just take a concept and, you know, give it wings. Right. 
or yeah. a dragon or a fire breath or whatever. Yeah, we use a lot of bats and lizards and amphibians, you know, like amphibians for paint schemes all the time. Right. Constant creature, like the predator, you know. It's right. <laughs> like loaded in an amphibian world. Um, and, and like I notice a lot of the a lot of the sculptors and everybody here, it seems like everybody has a pretty good handle on anatomy. Like, yeah. oh, oh, that's yeah. the serratus, or that's this muscle, or, or whatever. Like, everybody's, right. like, almost got, like, a doctor level, almost, you know, <laughs> level of anatomy. Uh, yeah. At least the names and the look of it, you know? People like to make fun of me for that, but I, I it's don't... It's not just you. It's, no, I've it's seen, everyone. I've seen Joe do it. I've seen yeah. a lot of people. They yeah. know. Yeah, I mean, it's important. I mean, I think any any classically trained artist, and, and I'm not completely classically trained, and a lot of us are not, but um, we had some type of art background and within art you look at the old fine artists you know Rembrandt, Da Vinci, all these guys they um, they studied anatomy you mm-hmm. know, and how it functions and that's really the only way you can be a good sculptor is right. if, even if it's you're sculpting a creature you need to look at similar animal anatomy or, or whatever is similar to that character you're creating so you can understand function, how the muscles would move, how things would compress. I mean, that's right. anatomy is really, really key to, right. to selling a sculpture and selling that it looks real and could actually function. Proportions and yeah, things like that. Exactly. Yeah. It's really it's proportions, but it's also you know dynamics of movement. You know how how something closes its arm and, right. and reaches out, and you would understand that there's you know wrinkles and compression here, so right. your sculpture would dictate that. Right. So. It's got to read right. Was it so? Aquaman was shot in Australia, and mostly in Australia. And what? Uh, yeah, I mean, primarily it was shot in Australia. Yeah. We had some pickups in Los Angeles, and they did a couple locations, but all principal photography with our main actors were all shot in Australia. Are there any differences in practical effects world in Australia or, or England and things like that? Like any cultural differences how they approach this particular art? I think. Um, Yes and no. I mean, there's different materials and different techniques. Um, I think overall it's kind of all become sort of homogenous and mixed together. I think at one point there was a big divide where if you went to England and went to an effects studio over there, they had very different materials Mm -hmm. and techniques. The end result was the same. Okay. But they had a different process to get there. Yeah. Um, I think over time, especially with the internet and uh, YouTube and everything that's out there and people... People's willingness to share information has really kind of blended it all together. Okay. So I think the same techniques are, are used all over the place. You know, they may call it something else. You know, they may put a U in mold and, you know, <laughs> yeah, things are true, a little yeah. different. But, yeah. but overall, the process is pretty much the same. But it was different before? It was fairly different? Yeah. I mean, at one point, uh, like England was... I would say England and, and Los Angeles was like at the forefront. So mm-hmm. if you went to other countries, it either didn't exist or it was yeah. still just kind of at the beginning stages. And then from the 80s on, um, you know, they really started to grow or 70, or late 70s, let's say, you know, all these other places started to expand. And I think for the most part are on the same level. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's there's more artists still in Los Angeles, but um now it's, I mean, it's global. It's everywhere. Yeah. You know, just not, not the same amount of work. I was say England and, England and Los Angeles are probably the biggest right now. Right. Um, where Sydney and um, Gold Coast and some of those places are much smaller. And, you know, mm-hmm. some other obscure places throughout the world are a lot smaller. Um, Vancouver's still fairly big. Okay. Uh, not, not as big as it was. I mean, it's all sort of, 
you know, based on where the work is and, and people will work, will travel kind of thing. So, you know, New Zealand, when Lord of the Rings and everything was happening down there, they hired tons of people from the United yeah. States to go down there. Yeah. And, and they trained a huge degree of, of the local crew down there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when The Hobbit came around, they, they were able to bring out less. So they created an infrastructure that was there. It's right. the same thing that happened. You know, we're kind of like a a virus <laughs> it seemed to blow up like crazy for new zealand after that i mean for those it did days. but then you know right now it's it's not right you know right. it's kind of the work has gone to other places right. and you know it's gone to australia or now it's going back to london or mm. where a lot of the work that would have been shot in london went to new zealand and it's all about taxes and credits and incentives right. and where where's the where's the best place for the production to film at that time right so. <clears throat> Were there any new techniques used on Aquaman as far as practical effects makeup is concerned? Um, I mean, I think not necessarily new, but I think we were able to advance some of the ideas and techniques that that I'd kind of started working on 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 Tron with my team of people there. Um, We were able to develop that, I think, even further on Aquaman. And, uh, you know, Tron was kind of the proving ground of a lot of 3D printing okay. for, for me mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and a process to do it. And I learned a lot from that. So as an art director and studio owner, you know, I've been able to kind of share the mistakes or things that I would have done differently on Tron on projects like this. Um, so it simplified a lot of that. And I think, one, the technology is far beyond where we were at on, on Tron. So it's, it's just more simple because of that but i think you know like the whole red commandos suit mm-hmm. excuse me the whole red commando suit that's 100 percent a 3d printed suit mm-hmm. you know? and that's kind of what we did on tron um but there was things like on tron we made the body we actually took the body and left it kind of asymmetrical like a human body is and tried to build around that thinking that it wouldn't fit right because everyone's anatomy is is uh kind of if you built something that's tailored to someone and they've got a slight turn to their body you want Mm -hmm. to sculpt it to that what we found on tron is that wasn't necessary okay so on this we just made everyone's body that we're building on completely symmetrical okay so we just picked a side and then mirrored it okay and it fit and and worked far better so um just little tech things like that that we learned on this um but overall the the makeup process i think the general approach to everything was kind of kind of the same you know okay. it's really just using a lot more 3d printing at mm-hmm. least for us to build things and um you know bringing in 3d scanning in the shop so we could actually take sculpture scan it throw it in the computer mirror it right uh, to save time you know there's some some interesting techniques that we started to i think further expand upon you know we sometimes already, they only sculpt like half right half the half the face or something yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, for example, many of the helmets, we would just sculpt to one side of it, mm-hmm. kind of get the gesture, get the shape of what we, we liked, and then uh, we'd go in, 3D scan it, mirror the whole thing in the computer, mm-hmm. and then make everything precision in the computer, and then 3D print the helmet. But it still had a clay and a, a traditional sculptor's touch to it. Right. So you can kind of, I don't know, working in clay... As a sculptor working in clay, you can kind of sense where the person's head is right. a little bit better. Where in 3D, you're looking at kind of a weird void of space. It's hard. You Mathematically, you can kind of judge how far away. But until you really touch it with a tool, you don't really know how far away that's right. sitting. At least for me. 
you know, right. Sam and some of the other guys that work here, Sam's really used to it, so mm-hmm. he can judge it far better than I can. So I have to rely on, on his opinions in some of those cases if I feel like if it's too thick or too thin. Okay. And sometimes we'll print a sample just to double check. But Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, I think from from this, I think we learned a lot of stuff like sculpting just half of the head. Okay. That's definitely a technique that we will continue to do or develop further on. And then also just building 100% of the computer for some of that stuff. Right. I think we'll definitely continue down that path. Right. So. I'll get more into 3D printing in yeah, a second. Yeah, no worries. That's, a, that's near the end, um, <laughs> at least as far as the questions are concerned. Um, so let's see here. Uh, let's actually go into your history for a little bit. Um, How did you get started doing this? Were you, were, you a, were you a kid making fake blood? Um, yes. Or, <laughs> or collecting fake blood that you could buy at Halloween and kind of okay. keeping a little surplus of whatever I could afford, you know, that year. Um, but yeah, I, I would say I started getting into this, I don't know, maybe 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. Started getting an interest in horror movies and making fake wounds and starting to play around with stuff. By the time I was 14, I was really into it. Okay. Um, you know, I have, I have friends that hit me up on Facebook and, you know, people I went to junior high and high school with and they'll send me and they're like, Hey, do you remember in science class, you built that whole anatomical <laughs> head with all the muscles on it? Like, no, but it sounds right. Yeah. And you made it all burned. <laughs> like, sounds okay. About, sounds about right. Yeah. So, but I mean, I grew up, I grew up pretty poor. I didn't have okay. a lot of resources. So I, I had to kind of work with residual stuff um, that was left over from Halloween a lot. Okay. You know, I, I didn't have the money to go out and buy plaster and alginate and oh, yeah, for sure. you know, sculpting clay. So I really didn't get into sculpting until, I don't know, it was probably 17, 18. Like really sculpting and trying to mm-hmm. learn how to mold. Um, and then shortly after that, I mean, I got into, uh, I started working for Stan Winston and, you know, some other shops around town. Uh, took an inter- internship, um, you know, with a local sh- shop to kind of learn a little bit more about the process. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years into it, I was teaching, you know, I started mm-hmm. teaching. I, I went through an assistantship program at Joe Blasco, which is actually when I was in junior high, it was a school that I wanted to go to. I just couldn't afford the 10 grand or 12 grand oh, yeah. to go there. So to kind of get that opportunity to, I had to go in and test for Joe Blasco and do a bald cap and do all this stuff to get hired. And then I went through his program as an assistant instructor. Okay. So I got a, a diploma that way and then ended up teaching for Westmore and some other schools around town. Uh, and then eventually was with stands and I was stands for almost 10 years, bounced around with to Steve Johnson's, uh, went to ADI at one point. I mean, kind of worked across the town, like, you know, mm-hmm. like everyone else out there. Yeah. Um, before starting my own shop in 2005. Okay. So, yeah. Well, I mean, when you were a kid, what were the movies? I mean, were you was it like the thriller? Was it Rick Baker specials on TV? Like, what was the you saw like Exorcist? Like, what was like some examples of stuff you were say, really inspired by? Yeah, definitely a lot of Rick projects. But um, the one that really, I think, the two that really kind of sold me in, into trying to pursue this was The Exorcist. Okay. When I found one, one it scared the living hell out of me when I was <laughs> yeah. a little kid. Yeah. Um, and then the other one was John Carpenter's The Thing. Okay, yeah. Um, which I think is still an amazing movie mm-hmm. today. Um, 
it just when, once I saw that and how extreme it was, I was like, oh my God, how do you do this as a job? <laughs> right. <clears throat> and started doing research yeah. and kind of learning more about people like Rick Baker and, you know, Dick Smith and, you know, learning the sort of history to make up. Um, and then really started pursuing it, you know, trying to figure out a way to become a makeup artist. But um, I remember like there was little specials, like the Thriller special was a mm-hmm. big one that I watched. Um, the other one was... Uh, uh, Steve Johnson did a special for the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards, okay. and he did all these makeup demos on his wife at the time, or girlfriend at the time, fiance, uh, Linnea Quigley. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just remember watching that going, oh, this is awesome, like <laughs> making zombies and yeah. showing how to make fake blood. Right. And, I mean, it's just one of those things that I remember watching that kind of inspired me to get into it a little bit more. Um, when I was 16, I ended up, I was dating a girl, and her mom was a photographer. And okay. I said, hey, I've got an interest in doing makeup makeup effects. She's like, well, what about doing beauty makeup? I'm like, I don't, <laughs> okay, yeah. I don't really want to do yeah. that. But she's like, well, it's a good paying job. If you learn how to do it, I'll hire you. So around 16, I started working with her. And she had another makeup hairstylist that I kind of studied under. And did that for kind of the first four years, three mm-hmm. and a half years. So, I mean, in high school, I was already doing uh, fashion shows and I was doing events with her as a makeup artist. Okay. Never thought about doing beauty, but really my professional background actually starts in print and fashion. Okay. So before I ever did effects, you know, all the models and stuff. Yeah. 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 Did models, did a lot of like, Los Angeles doesn't have a lot of runway, but they do have a little bit of it. Mm -hmm. A lot of photo shoot type stuff. Right. So, so in high school, I was driving from, at the time I was living up near Big Bear. Okay. And I would drive down from there um, a few times a week to go to like Huntington Beach or downtown LA That's or something like that. Two hours, right? Yeah. Two hour drive, yeah, right? Easily. Yeah. yeah. So, but it paid really well. You mm-hmm. know, I think at the time I was getting paid, you know, I don't know, 18, 20 bucks an hour. She was 16, to 17. I was like well. 16, 17. Yeah. So, where most of my friends were working at pizza hut or you know something like that getting at at that time probably seven bucks an hour or Mm -hmm. something so you know growing up as a poor kid trying to save to get out of the town that i was in i was more than willing to try and make those drives to try and earn the money and and set myself up for a career in mississippi i mean you're from new orleans i'm originally from new orleans yeah 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 um but i came out i went from new orleans to texas and then ended up um I think around fourth grade ended up in California. Uh, so you've been here since fourth grade. So I was a transplant. Okay. You know? Yeah. So I lost lost my long Oz and my <laughs> my accent pretty young. So. That accent is not really a southern accent, you know. It's kind of it's, like a, almost Boston. The ah uh, no. The, well, that to, to sounds, me it's similar to Boston. But if you go to like Louisiana, yeah. they have a long ah. Uh, yeah. So. It's it's weird. I've Te- it's, yeah. Louisiana's got their own thing, and I think it's the Creole mix that's sort of in oh, the, yeah. that French tone that's yeah. kind of things it, it skews their accent a little bit yeah it's like a little bit south sometimes but then it's it's not it's definitely its own thing yeah well, I guess Bostonians sort of have that too or, or Maine where they have like mm-hmm. ka ba so it's yeah, yeah. not it's, much of an R not much south. of an R yeah. where I think it's a harder R when you're in it, it holds more when you're in the south or yeah it's the hardest, hardest R in the south yeah, yeah. for sure yeah um were your parents, how they, how they, you know, were they supportive of you getting into blood and gore effects makeup at a young age or were they, they think it was weird? 
Well, I kind of I grew up with my grandmother mostly. Okay. Um, my mom was kind of around. Dad wasn't around at all. So grandma, being that she's you know she grew up during Great Depression, you okay. know? <laughs> um, she thought it was a little weird. She, <laughs> okay. thought, I, she thought I was disturbed, and uh-huh. you know probably considered sending me to therapy a few times. But, okay. Um, no, I mean she was once she saw that there was actually a career that I could make out of it, and I was really pushing hard to do that, and I was diligent about trying to you know make money and i wasn't just screwing around right i think she saw that and then when i started doing some movies and she started she wasn't around you know uh by the time that i had my own company she had already passed away at that time but um she kind of saw like at least some of the movies and some of the things i was working on and they were pretty high profile okay um i think at that point she really was very accepting of it and it's it's not like i was running back home asking for money either okay yeah they like that part. Yeah, it's yeah. Usually, <laughs> usually they enjoy that. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, you're known to be a bit uh, OCD by your friends and family. I think you accept that. I do. Yeah. <laughs> is this is this a quality you think that helps you to get to where you are now? Are are OCD artists more successful? Um, I would say yes and no. I think there are some people that the OCD side of them gets the better of them. Okay. And it makes them non-efficient and they can't compromise. And um, I don't, I think the compromise part of it is, you know, I'm not so OCD that I can't um, let go of things. Okay. You know, so yes, I think it's got, got me to where I'm at because mm-hmm. it, it's made me an overachiever in a lot of ways yeah. where I work really, really hard and I beat myself up um, a lot. So I think I'm my own worst critic okay. always. Yeah. Um, and I think most artists are. I think yeah. every artist has that. And then uh, I think the OCD side of it, of being like efficient and being organized and, and um, you know, one, I'm just always trying to learn new things and sort of better myself, which is part of my weird OCD. Um, I think that's helped me kind of, it's helped push me um, okay. to improve. Um, I don't, I, I know I'm OCD, but I would say I'm more anal. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Where I'm just, I'm a perfectionist. Right. Um, and an overachiever in that sense, you know, so I, right. I'm constantly ch- like, no matter what I do, I mean, I play guitar, mm-hmm. uh, I do martial arts, mm-hmm. you know, I do fishing, but right. It seems like everything I do as a hobby ends up, I take it to the extreme level. (laughs) So like, you know, if I'm doing martial arts, I take it as far as I can go. If I'm Mm -hmm. playing guitar, you know, I took 15 years of lessons and was in bands and probably could have went professional. Mm -hmm. I just realized it wasn't going to make any money for me. So that's why I gave up on that in high school as well. But, um, (laughs) you know, the same thing, fishing, like fishing started as a hobby and now I actually do that semi-professionally i do yeah. pro tournaments and have sponsors and right. uh, just that's it's just in my nature to kind of constantly push myself to see how far i can go within anything so. there's a lot of people throw around ocd quite a lot uh, i mean you know i think it's a good general term yeah, yeah. to to kind of explain someone that has some kind of specific control over <laughs> yeah. over set certain things so, i mean i think before life. people were what do you call it like Medical terms became very common in, in everyday speech. I'm assuming back yeah. in the day, people would just say, oh, you're very particular. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of OCD, which yeah. has this whole other thing to it. 
It does. Like I, you know, I I can walk down the street and step on cracks. I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't yeah, have yeah. to. I don't have to close the door twenty times. My dad is like that. Yeah. My dad. So that's I have true OCD. I mean, yeah. that's that's true OCD. Yeah. Where you have some obsession that you just can't get over, and your brain just doesn't allow you to get past it. I mean, I don't have that. I think I'm just more of a perfectionist and very yeah. like anal in my approach to things. I'm very specific about how I do things. I'm very particular. Right. You know? My my dad, my brother, they have to every, almost every time when they get out of the car, they have to kind of check. I don't know what they're doing. Like check the inventory of the car, go around it, and then okay, we're good. And then go into the store or whatever. It's it's. I I, I didn't get that. I used gene. to have a little of that where I would. Um, I definitely have it. It's in me. I, I know yeah. it's there, and I have to stop myself. But one of the things that I would always do is my garage door. So like, okay, I'd yeah, close my yeah. garage door and I start to drive down the street going, did I close my garage door? And that sounds to, fairly normal. I'd though, have to turn back yeah. around and look, but it, sometimes yeah. I would have to do it like two times. Yeah, yeah. We're usually okay. on the first one and go like, it's closed and you, you, you leave. Or, That's a home security thing too though, right? It is, yeah. it is, but it's, yeah, I mean, I guess it's like checking your stove or you know, yeah. anything. Uh, yeah, like yeah, so. Yeah, don't want a uh, gas explosion. Um, so, so generally everyone thinks that I'm just OCD. <laughs> People talk about it. Yeah, I'm sure. People talk about it. <laughs> it's all right. I'm, I'm just very organized. Yeah, yeah. Very yeah. specific. Yeah. So. I, I, I enjoyed using a label maker and organizing yeah. things. And, yeah. uh, you know, like people joke on set that, you know, they'll come up and move a brush on my station to see if I notice. <laughs> and 99% yeah. of the yeah. time I notice. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and you said you do martial arts. You said that. And, yeah. uh you're interested in Japanese culture, I know. Yep, yep. I always have been since I was a little kid. I wanted to ask about that, and I'm going to tie this in with the OCD or the being particular. Japanese culture as well is sort of known to have, yeah. you could call it OCD, but, you know, like a, an attention to details. Japanese yeah. people have told me that, too. They kind of feel like foreigners don't pay attention to the details enough. It's true. So... Do you, is that one of the things that kind of got you, like, did you have a connection on that level with Japanese culture, or was it just ninja movies, or what? I think as a kid, it was like ninja and samurai movies. Okay. Um, but then I, as I learned about the culture a little bit, and their level of perfectionism, it mm -hmm. really kind of, it kind of hit a note within me. It was like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. You, know, you right. can strive for, you know, to be your best in, in all these things, and it's not considered weird. Right. Um, and there's just a level of craftsmanship and precision and, and their worldly view of beauty within nature. And right, you know, there's right, just right. so many elements that really kind of I connected with and right. just in deeply was just naturally in, ingrained within me. Right. So it's not something that I learned. It's something that I saw as a correlation to something that I already felt. Okay. Yeah, I grew up. I mean, the initial trigger for me was video games and anime. But, you know, you kind of like. There's a, you graduate a little bit, you know, you go to the language and the culture yeah. and, 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 and all those kind of things. So, well, you've gone even further. I mean, your level of the language is far beyond mine. I mean, I'm just, I, I was, I just had to not too much stuff in my life really yeah. and had, didn't have a chance to focus on it. But, you know, for the last year, I've been really trying to focus on it. And, you know, I do like Duolingo every single yeah. day. And, I'm trying to learn because it's something, it's like one of those things that I regret not doing years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. So now I'm trying to make up for last time to, to, I think learning the language is an important part of if you want to be connected, especially on the martial arts side of it, if you want to be connected 
you really need to understand the language um, to kind of get better insight. Yeah, that, can, that helps a lot. I feel like there's a, that's sort of a difference, I think, with a lot of people. If you don't, if you're just into, like with anime or something, there's like a, so many anime fans out there, they just don't know anything about Japanese culture and how much should they know, really? It's just yeah, sure. movies they're watching. Sure. But it, it can help you to know the deeper side of where things are coming from and with martial arts and things like that yeah. as well you know how japanese people think about certain things as as well you know that's a <laughs> that's a whole other topic yeah for sure yeah. I mean, yeah it's it's definitely yeah i mean especially if you look at the older culture it's very very different they have a very opinionated kind of approach to things and i yeah. say that i don't say that in a mean way I yeah. just it's an ingrained element i think within the older culture where the younger generations i think are becoming a little more westernized and they're that's a lot yeah it's happening a lot yeah, yeah. and i want to say it's almost to a fault of the culture though that it's it's damaging the culture it um, could be no studies on it yet but yeah. it seems like it could it's like yeah. it's like they're having their 60s revolution now yeah you know yeah although it's japan you know it's a totally different style you know they're not a bunch of hippies running around but, they've never they never had a drug revolution they, yeah you know it's an island nation you can't sneak that stuff in so like but they, it seems like know. those things are starting to kind of happen yeah. there which is changing their culture and and it's it's like our 60s it's like yeah. i see that kind of starting there now could like, be you know we're you know, uh, I think sex is less of a taboo in their yeah. culture. Um, they're starting to get a little more violent crime. There's yeah. a little more free speech. There's, yeah. um, you know, different views on marriage. And, you know, everything is really rapidly changing there within the last, yeah. let's say, 15, 20 years. Yeah. Um, and it feels like our 60s transition of where you started having free speech. And, right. you know, there's sort of a cultural revolution that sort of happened at that point, which for good or I don't know. Maybe it was worse. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like maybe the 50s were a little more sheltered and a little better world to live in here. Uh, in some ways. In yeah. some ways, yeah. I mean, as far I think as... we were more efficient as a uh, as a culture in engineering and, and actually doing uh, doing better things for the world during that time. Although Post-war. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... Um, you know, people are a little more hardworking, a little more respectful. And yeah, I think a lot of that has gone away and people are a little more, uh, I don't know, jaded and just kind of crappy towards people on a regular basis. And yeah, yeah, it'd be nice if some of that came back again. (laughs) (laughs) Half the time I just, I hate being around people outside. It could have been, I mean, you know, yeah. Like uh, they were all soldiers coming back from war. So there's like a, you know, on both sides, every side, you know, so there was a little bit of, for better or worse, that influence on people, but that's what people were rebelled against the next generation, you know, yeah. with our sixties and stuff. So, yeah. hopefully, we get better as a as a world at some point. <laughs> Japan, yeah, Japan does change fast because when I was living there from 06 to 09, I taught English there. Uh, you know, no one even knew what Halloween was. It's just an example. Right now, there's this huge in Shibuya, this huge uh, Halloween party. They were flipping over cars. There was a bunch of arrests. Really? Yeah. Wow. It's not like trick or treating with kids and stuff. They again, it's like taking the influence, but they ran with it. It's just a big outdoor party. But Colonel Sanders is still like their Santa Claus, which is yeah, yeah. You know, they (laughs) they have their own Christmas. That's yeah. I used to get asked, "What date are you going on? Who are you going on? Who are you going on a date with for Christmas?" Right, right. You know, it's because it's like their Valentine's Day, right? Yes, kind of. Yeah, you're supposed to give a gift, and yeah, it's it's like a a gift to your loved one or potential loved one. You, You go on a date. 
you know? It's weird. And then, and then New Year's Eve is the time you spend with your family back home, cozy next to a fire, going to the... You go to the temple, they call it Hatsumode. You just mm-hmm. you do your like temple thing, you know? Right. And that's uh, maybe maybe that stems from praying for good luck or, or whatever, but... How long did you live there? Three years and three months. Oh, wow. Well. Yeah. It's, it's a little while. I mean, I learned Japanese mainly from from just being there, obviously, hearing it all the time, all the time, mm-hmm. all the time, but also uh, learning how to write and stuff from uh, being in the fact- faculty room. I was... Uh... So what, ha- what happened was my dad... This is a backstory on me. <laughs> I, swear we're, I swear we're going to wind this up soon. Sorry. <laughs> uh, my dad went to pharmacy school and then went to medical school. So he was, did a lot of great things in college and after college and I just went to film school and I'm like kind of like that was it so for me I almost internally sort of viewed being in Japan as like my my post-grad or whatever Hmm. it's like okay I did film now I'm gonna do Japanese I'm really gonna do it right so I got these cards these kanji cards flashcards and all the books you could imagine and um, when you're an English teacher in Japan most of the time, if you're not teaching a class, you're in the faculty room, and they just let you study. Hmm. So uh, you would have like only like four classes a day most of the time, sometimes five. So that's like four, three to four hours a day. But you're there eight hours? Yeah, eight hours, mm. or sometimes more. And uh, you know, if I was a really great teacher, I should have been, looking back, I should have done more overtime, but I always just left. <laughs> Always. Typical gaijin. Yeah, that was a, they called it a gaijin smash back in the day. Yeah. Where you just. Go and work and then leave. Yeah. 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 Try and find your Japanese wife. But I was, yeah. Like many of them. I was also 22, so yeah. there was no way I was staying. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I just studied my ass off in the, in the faculty room. So that's kind of how that happened. So that was like being thrown into the fire. Um, <laughs> horror was your favorite growing up? Not sci-fi. What was my favorite horror? Your favorite like uh, genre of film or movie or TV show? Uh, I mean, I'd probably say I don't know. Probably horror movies, honestly. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, that was probably my first thing that I got into, which was you know I'd go and try and watch all the all the obscure horror movies that I could find at the time. There was some crappy VH VHS street store. trash. I think I ever watched that. No. <laughs> okay. But I, I remember one of the worst, which I actually pulled up recently. I saw it on okay. like, it was on Amazon Prime or something. It's called Video Dead. Okay. And it's just a horrible 80s zombie thing where like the TV releases zombies into the world. It's horrible. <laughs> it's really, really bad. Okay. I, I remember at the time going, oh, this is awesome because there was some scene with they killed a dog shoving a tennis ball down its mouth. It was, okay. It was, I think the zombie did. I remember as a graphic image, and I went back to watch it, going like, "Oh, this is going to be really cool." And it's unwatchable. Okay. It was an unwatchable movie. But, <laughs> I mean, it's was, I was really into like the alien movies. I was into like, you know, Terminator was awesome. Um, all of the. Uh, Are you Terminator One guy over Terminator Two? Because I feel like everybody in my generation. I mean, you're not that much older than me, but I feel like you know, like people around my age Terminator 2 is clearly number one but uh, some of the people I, that are a little bit older than me in the shop they, they, they seem to be pretty 
in agreement that num- they like number one more. I think number one is good. It's a different movie. It's kind of like comparing Alien and Aliens, yeah. in my opinion. They're both, I think, standalone good movies. I think action-wise, Aliens, or uh, uh, sorry, Terminator 2, yeah. is way better and has way cooler effects in it. Right, right. Um, I think Stan Winston and, and ILM did phenomenal work on that. Yeah. And I remember watching that being more inspired as an effects artist okay. by that movie than I was by the original. Okay. Because the original, Stan Winston did a great job with that as well. But you, know, you look at it now, the budget's very different. The head doesn't hold up very well as he's you know doing surgery on his eye and his oh, arm. Yeah. And it, yeah. just, it looks it looks pretty bad. But story wise, it's right. a good story. It's still right. a good movie. Right, it's right, still right. Great sci fi action. Um, just Terminator Two is just far more polished, mm-hmm. except for the the main kid, which I just want to kill. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, Edward I Furlong. His name. Furlong. Yes, oh, I, yes, I, yes. I can't yes. stand that kid. I mean, even <laughs> when I watched the movie, I was annoyed by that kid. So. <laughs> okay, but it's still a great movie. So. Okay. Uh, the other, I was into like a lot of Carpenter stuff too. So okay, right. I was really into like The Fog, and I was into mm-hmm. uh, uh, Big Trouble, Little China, huge martial arts and right, you know, yeah. sci-fi horror type stuff. Um, and The Thing, like I said, The Thing was just that's still one of my favorite movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Today, so. one of the guys that's here has worked on that. Mm-hmm. He had the choice between Star Wars and that, and he chose the thing. Yeah, he made a better choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Return of the Jedi is okay. But Man. yeah, the thing is, you know, definitely like a classic. Yeah, Kurt Russell's awesome in it yeah, too. So. Yeah, yeah. Um just we're gonna wrap it up. So uh like last few questions here. What would you like is there anything you want to see happen in Aquaman two? Story wise. Story wise. I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm curious to see where they go with mm-hmm. it. You know, um, I'm hoping they don't necessarily tie it right into like another Justice League kind of thing again. They said that they're not. They're not interested in that. I think that's good. I yeah. mean, I think you know, I think Marvel did a good job with that as well, where they really developed individual stories yeah. before they started doing the Avengers yeah. and squishing it all together. Um, I think they could do another full story. Maybe it has a little more history that's tied into it, which I think would be really cool Right. see some of the, the past of, although it's been kind of summed up in this movie of what Atlantis was, but there could right. be some cool backstory that's there and further development. I'd love to see more of like the fish kingdom and, mm-hmm. um, and just see where, what they do tie in. Like what is the next villain that you kind of put into? I think it? it's going to be black mana. I mean, I don't know for sure, but it seems like that's what they're setting up. Yeah, I mean, it is, but I mean, I don't know. Is there another huge villain in the comic books that they could tie into? I mean, he's got a bunch, but Black Man is more or less his Joker. Yeah. You know, it's like his number one. It's just, uh, I mean, how much can they do underwater, you know, if it's Black Mana? I mean, I'm, I know yeah. he can go under there, but underwater, but I don't know. I think that's something they're going to have to gonna have to tackle. Um I think that at the very least, Black Mana has got to kill uh, Arthur's dad. It's got to be eye for an eye. He's yeah. coming. He's coming for uh, Tom Curry. Is his name? Yeah, Thomas yeah, Tom Curry. Curry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that that's got to happen in the first thirty minutes. That's a good revenge story. Yeah, it could be a good one. Yeah. Go, yeah, because I mean, he believes that Aquaman killed his dad, which he kind of did. He let him die. He let him die. Yeah, but. yeah. Straight up, could have saved him. Saved him. 
Yeah, but he was kind of a dick. So. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> he was killing other people. So. Yeah, and that's how the comics go too. You know, and it's he's well, like having a that. little of that vigilante. He's not a vigilante, but having a little of that quality to Aquaman. Yeah, keeps a little of that darkness that's in there. Right, and doesn't make it all light and sparkly. No, I mean, I, you know, I, if you've seen the movie, you know, it's and then read the comics. He's not as he's not as benevolent as Superman. That's like right the top of goodness, you know, but then Aquaman is, you know, somewhere below, you know, but not villain either, of course. Right. All right. Um, is there a dream project you want to work on? I think, didn't you say one time you, you, you definitely want to work on Batman at some point? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. I mean, that would be a good one. I mean, I've kind of done, I mean, a Terminator project would be cool too, but mm-hmm. um, just cause I was able to do, you know, an alien, an aliens project and a uh, a predator project. Too bad it was both those movies put together. <laughs> and alien versus predator. The first AVP. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it was a fun job to work on. It was crazy, but um, just uh, not a great movie. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a huge fan of it. Yeah. And kind of, I went. I wasn't a big fan of the the other ones afterwards. But yeah. Um. So got to work on some aliens and work on a predator, which was fun. Yeah. Um. Terminator thing, but Batman. I think Batman would be cool. I'd love to build a Batman suit. Yeah. Just because as a kid, I was always um, a huge fan of Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I still at home have you know a box just filled with Detective Comics uh-huh. and Batman comics. Yeah, really followed it. It was really one of the only comic books that I really did follow. Okay, um, deeply. Yeah, uh, as a kid, I had a bunch of other stuff, but that was that was the one that I always liked. And I always there's something about just the fact that he's just a man. Yeah, yeah, I always, yeah. I always yeah. kind of connected yeah. to. It's like it's just a guy that's a vigilante that's right. going out there trying to do the best job that he can to protect his city and right. the people that he loves. Um, and there's nothing, you know, weird or ethereal. Or he wasn't an alien. There wasn't anything else that changed right. him. He was just a badass. Right, so, <laughs> right, right, right. And he had really cool toys and cars. right. Yeah, the gadgets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the '89 Batman Tim Burton one. Like saw that. I loved that movie. Yeah. Lo- loved yeah. the car. Yeah. Loved the whole vision of it. Yeah. It's the first time I had kind of seen that rubber suit yeah. Yeah. look, which just looked super cool. Yeah. I mean, I remembered like the Adam West, you know. White, yes. Yes. Which is not cool. That's like, uh, you know, people respect that more for what it is these days, but. It's great. It's like, campy. It's fine. It's, it's fine. Can't be yeah. tongue in cheek. Yeah. You know, and it's. It, I mean, Adam West was great in it, but yeah, he's, the Michael Keaton one was pretty awesome. Michael Uslan, this guy that's a producer for all these films, he got he's the one that actually picked Burton to do the '89 one. I think he said that you know he was a he was a kid that grew up reading the comics before that mm. show, and he said he was both mortified and excited when he saw it because he said that like the, even the comics at that time were a lot darker. Yeah, than yeah. what the show was. Right. Even those like those 50s comics, early 60s comics. And then Adam West comes out and it kind of like, it changed it a bit too much. Well, it's the same thing with like Green Hornet and yeah. everything else at that same, kind of around the same time. Yeah. It's like, you know, network television didn't want to put something dark. On. Right, right. You know, even if you looked at Dragnet or, you know, some kind of cop show, yeah. that was still like, you know, compared to now, it's like the Andy Griffith show. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really watered down. Yeah. And jokey yeah. and... You know, that's that's what the studios thought the audiences wanted. They didn't want to right. show negativity. Um, and I think 
we're kind of getting that again where yeah. audiences do want something that's a little more lighthearted and yeah. you know kind of the reason you go to the theater or you watch movies is it's in a way to es- escape mm-hmm. you know so kind of tying in all of the crap that's in your world on a daily basis right. in the movie doesn't make it really fun right you know? and i think it's good that the industry is kind of shifting and creating taking a, a risk to be a little more creative and a, right. and a little more fantasy oriented and, right. and take people to a new world where I think, feel like for the last 15 years, there hasn't been a lot of that. Right. You know, it's been really grounded kind of stuff, you know, really yeah. gritty, you know, uh, and I think a lot of that came from, you know, reality or, or, um, paranormal activity kind of you know single camera type stuff like that you know there was a big surgence of that found footage found footage type stuff where they're trying to make it feel as real as possible i think that kind of bled into a lot of other genres as well so not that they're doing single camera to make found footage but that kind of everything is real and as real Mm -hmm. as possible that kind of tone spread out to a lot of movies If, if you had your say how would you how would you make your batman suit uh, I mean, definitely a lot of 3D printing. <laughs> okay. Um, but like a, like a, like the gray suit, kind of what you saw in BVS, the bat, bat flex suit. No, or... I mean, I honest, I really like the, um, I'm not a huge fan of the cowl for the Christopher Nolan one, the last one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the suit itself, yeah, had some really cool tech looking stuff to right. it. I think if you combine that with a little bit of like the, uh, the tactical, um, kind of desert, version that they did of batman in, right. um that's batman superman right yeah the the nightmare sequence yeah where he's got the like yeah. the <clears throat> the goggles on yeah. he's got some tactical equipment that's on yeah. him i mean if you kind of blended the two of those together uh-huh. so it's kind of like a you know what are the military suits like darpa suits <laughs> maybe something like a that, little yeah. mix of that kind of yeah. thrown into it so it's it's grounded it feels tactical it feels yeah. functional um but it feels super high tech okay you know? Something along those lines, and still low profile and, and sleek. Supposedly that Nolan, uh, that in the, in the in the Dark Knight, when that Skyhook thing, mm. even that was based on something real, like some CIA thing. Oh, I'm sure. Whenever he got pulled out of the building in China. Oh yeah, yeah, right. He, everything was had some sort of ground oh, ground sure. to it. I'm sure they found as much possible tech that was really out there. Which I, I thought all that stuff was cool because it does feel so tangible it feels super mm-hmm. real that you know it's tech that does exist right you know, right here and there and i like that they explained a lot of that too like you know his little grappling hook his, yeah. his spelunking tool yeah and, you know, yeah yeah kind of stuff yeah uh i would also like to incorporate some kind of cool samurai elements into it as well i mean i think there's a cool tech way of of doing some of that so it gets sort of that ninja yeah there's look. a the martial arts aspect's huge in it and the, yeah. the whole ninja thing like there's that anime that came out recently called Batman Ninja. I haven't seen that, but I saw some clips and it looked really cool. It it's insane. It's kind of a comedy because when you watch it, it's just they know that they're making something ridiculous mm. and they just go for it. But there is a lot of ninja stuff, and to me, you know, anytime Batman throws a smoke bomb, I'm just so into that. Yeah. I, I love that and fighting in darkness and things like that. Like I, I feel like I mean they should have a scene like the warehouse scene. Uh, in Batman vs Superman, that was a really awesome fight scene. Oh, Probably movie. the best Batman fight scene. Yeah, they should have that. But I think that my hope for whatever Matt Reeve does is that he, uh, you know, there's there's the stealth aspect to the fighting is a big part of it. I think they tried to do that in the uh, Batman Begins a little bit with kind of the ninja environment. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I don't know if it really came across as super stealthy. Yeah. Um, and I honestly, I never bought Liam Neeson as a ninja, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's fine. He's, he's fine. still cool. Though. He's a big guy. He's still cool. Hard to hide. Yeah. He's really hard to hide. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Watch your ground or whatever, or your yeah. footing. Watch your footing. Mind your footing. Mind your footing. Yes. <laughs> So last question, what do you, what is the, what's the future of Fractured? You've grown quite a lot over the years, other than a dream Batman project. What's, how do you see Fractured growing? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think uh, I've always pushed to be um, involved in tech and as much tech that we can get our hands on. That's why we do so much 3D printing and I've incorporated 3D scanning and 3D modeling and um, and I've really tried to create a pipeline with visual effects as well. So we're designing things that are a seamless hybrid between the two. Right. Where we're actually building the models and we're building or scanning our sculptures or whatever it is to provide them with the correct information to work with. Um, I mean, I'd like to continue growing that um, even further. Uh, and I would like to... Uh, like to continue more in the medical industry as well. Okay. I think yep. There's something really gratifying. You know, all of our work with the the Boston Children's Hospital yep. has been great, and I'd like to do more of that, um, even if it's uh, you know with other vendors or other other entities like that. Right. Um, and just uh, you know, continuing to develop and take risks and try new materials and new processes within house here. Uh, I think we're always trying to do that. I'm always willing to do a calculated risk and try some type of new process or technology. Definitely want to try more of that. Right. Um, and just, you know, see what the future takes. I mean, there's so much amazing technology. We're right on the cusp of some incredible changes, I think, within the 3D world. Okay. Um, and, and just the manufacturing world and how that can change our industry, I think, right. for the better. Right. Um, and just trying to stay on that cutting edge is really important to me. Um, right. So we'll see. I mean, I think a lot of people, if you don't um, start moving in that direction, you could easily kind of get washed over. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the the speed and pace in this industry now. Yeah. Compared to what it was five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, I mean, it's drastically different. You know? Right. Um, it's do, faster now. It's way faster. Yeah. 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 It's way faster. I mean, we we get a third quarter, sometimes even less. You know, mm -hmm. to build things. So I think accepting uh, 3D, 3D technology, 3D printing, and other ways to design and build for this industry is really, really important. And it keeps us building, I think, a really sound, high-level product that um, you can do in a short period of time. Right. You know, the cost isn't there, so there's a big price point that's still there, so it makes it a little inhibitive to really take it on fully um, because the technology is so expensive at this point. But I feel like we're just on, you know, just on the turning point where there's a lot of within, let's say the next 10 years, yeah. um, there's going to be so many tech and new uh, materials that are going to come out um, and new machines that will come out that yeah. it's just drastically going to change the price point and make it more accessible. Um, across the board, I think even to the public. I think the public is really going to start yeah. making that shift. There's a really yeah. great book um, uh, on, called 3D. It's, I have to look it up. It's it's on 3D printing, but uh, it's on the sort of ramifications of what 3D printing is going to do okay. globally, you know, yeah. um, to 
3D printing your house, you know, from right. the ground up, you know, right. with every single color, every component, electronics, every material right. that you can imagine. I mean, I think that's we're twenty to thirty years from from that type right. of stuff. But right. you know, 3D printing organs and right. organic materials. Mm-hmm. And we're just on just on the turning point of that stuff becoming possible, which printing with organic materials or similar organic materials is something that possibly we could use as well. That's something that could tie into makeup effects and um, medical as mm-hmm. well. So I think the more we can kind of continue to grow that, the the better we are. And I think it opens us up to a wider market as well and not okay. just completely reliant on the film industry, um, which is one thing that I want to try and achieve is, you know, not being 100% reliant on the film industry and trying to do things that are in the medical industry, ways to give back, ways to right. feel like we're actually helping, you know, the masses and you know, right. helping people that really deserve it. Um, we'll see. We'll see where that goes. I mean, there's there's so many different ways. You think traditional change. sculpting might be eventually be like one percent of? Uh... No, I mean, I think that's still going to be there. But I think, and I've encouraged it to everyone here. I, I think learning ZBrush and learning three uh, D modeling is important, and I think it's going to become more and more valuable over the next few years yeah Um, so the ones that have that in their repertoire and and, in their skill set are the ones that are going to be working more often and they're going to be more diverse yeah and i don't think that's just within fractured i think that's going to start yeah industry-wide you know i know a lot of people that you know may have worked at legacy or you know some of the other studios around town they've also encouraged some of those things oh yeah i would assume so yeah i mean you you have to i mean it's it's silly not to yeah, you know, just yeah. be so stubborn to to not learn something new. It's it's you're just going to shoot yourself in the foot. So. But it's definitely not going to be almost a hundred percent. You got ZBrush artists and then 3D prints being grown. Like, I don't think I, is so. That's not that's not going to be the most most of it. I don't think so. Not yet. I mean, okay. I think um, you know it's the technology isn't there yet to where the resolution of what you can do in a sculpture and a handmade mold is the same as what you can do in a 3d printed mold. It's close. It's very, very close. Um, it's just not, it's, you know, it's, it's a 10% difference though. That's what I mean by close. I mean, that's pretty incredible. Like the high resolution printers that we have here, the detail, I mean, are all of our maquettes, they're not even sculpted anymore. They're just Mm -hmm. 3d models that we print and the detail on them is, pretty damn good right, you know right, they're a little right. washed out but you know the the old 3d prints where you look at things where it's just stair-stepped and the whole thing has little layers in it yeah. that that doesn't really it, it exists but that's with cheap low resolution printers uh, and why you saw so much of that is because that's what was affordable to people yeah yeah you know now you can get machines like our high resolution printers um and you can put it into a company of our size um at a price point that's not insane yeah, you know, we're ten years ago. That would have. There's no way you just right. couldn't afford to do it unless you had a lot of money coming in with massive projects. Um, you would sub it out. You would sub it to a, a service bureau. So now we can actually do it in house and not have to do that. So they were saying that uh, kids were going to be able to. You know, you buy the file for the, the sneakers that you want, and then you mm-hmm. 3D print your own shoes. Yeah, you know, that's that's going to be one of the things in the future. That's, yeah. I mean, Amazon is already investing in 3D printing. Mm-hmm. They're already investing in, in uh, you know, a platform to actually have downloadable content. 
Um, everyone's starting to turn that way. And I think it will. I mean, I think at some point you want to, I don't know, I'm looking at like a wall outlet over here. If you want to like print a wall outlet, but you want to give it some cool filigree so it matches your, you know, 1900s craftsman home. You could, and you could just download the file and have your little home printer and print it and go plug it on the wall and be done and never have to worry about shipping or anything. And you could pick the color and whatever you want. So we're, we're right there. And I think... Personally, I think within the next five years, we're going to see more of that. Oh, yeah. A, a hell of a lot more of it, honestly. So. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks for being the first yeah, man. guest on Movie Dojo. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so. Thank you. All right. All right. This is Stefan from the Superhouse Podcast. Be sure to check us out on Patreon, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and any other godforsaken social media outlet that we that we should be floating on we are basically on all social media <laughs> yeah, all social media mainly facebook and twitter and patreon check out the links in the description we have a lot of uh cool goals uh set up on our patreon like if you donate a dollar you'll be able to uh give us a topic for us to talk about and that's we'll talk dope. about for maybe an hour or more who knows yeah. how long it'll take and that's pretty tight <laughs> that's the coolest thing <laughs> wait we're on the internet that's pretty good <laughs> if you and we can make money <laughs> what <laughs> if you donate a thousand dollars you get full frontal nudes we haven't set that up but it's a possibility if you give us a grant who knows what'll happen check us out <laughs> i'll do that <laughs> i'll do that <laughs> You get to go on a date with one of us for $10,000. <laughs> you pay for everything. <laughs> you get to have your way with Maddie for $20,000. For a million, I'll give you Joey for a weekend. <laughs> for $30,000, we'll help you hide a body. Check out our Patreon. Superhouse Gigolo Project. 2018. <laughs> Link's in the description.